Well, good morning. Good to see you all this morning. Um, thank you, uh, everyone who has reached out uh, in prayers for my father. Uh, to be honest, we had been getting pretty much only difficult news uh, the last couple of days. Um, right after our leadership team retreat finished yesterday, our pastors and deacons spent about 10 hours together this weekend uh, working on uh, the year ahead. Uh, it was a great time, very unifying time. And, um, and then just right afterwards, I get a phone call, and it's from Canada, and it's the ICU doctor who's watching my dad and uh, gives me not a great report and uh, kind of trying to prepare me for what might be coming. Um, but over the night, uh, the Lord was uh, good and uh, allowed him to get some relief, and so we're thankful. Uh, any news is good news, and um, we're thankful for that, thankful that the Lord has, has him in his hands. Uh, it was uh, wonderful to hear of a church. There was a church in Philadelphia that's been close to my parents uh, since they first started uh, on, in missions that had an all-night prayer meeting for my dad. So that's, you know, amazing, just wonderful. So uh, keep praying for him. Uh, he's now out of the woods. I'm going to try to get up there if I can uh, this week. Uh, they're right in the middle of moving, too. <laughs> they close on their house this Thursday. Um, so there's just a lot going on in their lives. So appreciate your prayers for them. Uh, good to see folks back. Uh, good to see Nick uh, recovering from surgery. Uh, good to see you, brother, and uh, others uh, that we've uh, been missing. Uh, good, great to have Mike and Misty back with us this morning. Uh, one more week, right? Uh, next Sunday, we'll uh, spend a little time uh, to uh, pray for them as they get ready to leave on the 27th, I think, right? Uh, from Chicago. So exciting times. Uh, lots, of, lots of great stuff happening. Uh, praise the Lord. He, uh, he, knows, uh, he knows the plan for this year better than any of us, right? So appreciate your prayers for us and uh, look forward to getting into God's Word again today. Long passage, right? So uh, I'm going to speak fast because i got a lot to get through. So uh, if you're taking notes, just uh, jot as much as you can down. You'll probably need to go to it later because uh, there's not a whole lot of time today to, uh, to sit in one spot. But um, in our passage this morning... Um, the preacher, uh, as he calls himself, or as, as we know him, Solomon, King Solomon most likely, um, asked the question in, in this book, what is it that makes life worth living? What is the meaning of life? And the whole book of Ecclesiastes, as we've talked about from the beginning, is kind of a quest to find this only thing, um, and as we'll see, Ecclesiastes shows us that there are really only two ways to live. And we're kind of, we've been working uh, little by little, uh, we're starting to, to escalate to the, the finale of Ecclesiastes. We're not quite there, but we're almost there. We're, we're moving closer and closer toward the conclusion, the answer to this quest that Solomon has been taking us on all of his observations under the sun, uh, life uh, apart from God. And so this morning, we're picking up the text here in chapter 9, verses 13 through 18, which provides an example um, and really an introduction, I think, to the key topics that chapter 10 is then going to explore in more detail. So 
We'll get into chapter 10 here in a moment, but what can we learn first by way of introduction from this story at the end of chapter 9? Look, look at first at verses 13 through 16. I've also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. That's In fact, that's the title of my message today, Wisdom is Better. Now this incident, as you stop and think about it, about this poor man, and um, it has some parallels to, to a few different biblical events, but it doesn't seem to be a perfect fit with any of them. It, it's probably something that the preacher saw happen. He's something he observed. And, and what happens in the story? Ingratitude is what happens. Um, this obscure, wise man averts disaster. He saves people's lives by his wisdom. And did he get a nice little reward? You know, did he get a, a nice little pension fund? Did he get a free house? Did he? No, he got forgotten. He got ignored. And the next two verses both continue to commend wisdom to us, but with a slightly skeptical, cynical undertone. Look at verse 17. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. The words of the wise are better. But whose words are likely to get more votes? Right? Well, that depends on who's speaking and who's listening. Then in verse 18, wisdom is better than weapons of war. But one sinner destroys much good. The first half of the saying, wisdom is better than weapons of war, sounds a lot like what Solomon wrote in Proverbs 16.32. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty. He who rules his spirit than he who takes the city. But the second half of this verse, one sinner destroys much good, reminds us how fragile good is and how easily um, good can be lost or spoiled or overcome. And isn't it true that in this life, some, sometimes it seems like, like evil can, can get out onto the track and it's already finished three laps before wisdom has its shoes tied and it's ready to go. Um, wisdom is better, Solomon says, better than power. It's certainly better than evil. But don't count on wisdom earning you universal praise. Don't count on, if you're, if you're trying to live for people's approval, you're going to die by their rejection. So do good and don't care who gets the credit. Care more about doing good to someone than about whether or not, what whether they think of you, what they think of you or not. And don't let the lure of approval draw your heart like a magnet toward approving things that God disproves. Don't let the pull of human praise keep you from living for God's praise. So these first verses here really serve as an effective introduction to tell us that wisdom is better than its alternatives. But even though it's better, it still has some limitations. Now on to chapter 10. 
like the book of Proverbs does, uh, in order to teach us wisdom, in this chapter, the preacher fires off this, this barrage of Proverbs all in a row. And, and he says a lot of things about a lot of subjects from many different angles very quickly. But I think the main point of this chapter is that there really are two ways to live. And the preacher is calling us to flee folly and seek wisdom. Now, to get a handle on this whole chapter, I think the way I'd like to walk through it, it's not an easy passage to sort out, um, to outline neatly. (laughs) But um, I think the way I wanted to handle it this morning is walk through it in three points. And because so much of the chapter is a running contrast between folly and wisdom, instead of moving through the passage in order, um, we're going to kind of skim across the chapter three times. And each time we're going to be picking up things from the chapter, something different about wisdom. So the first thing I want us to notice as we look at chapter 10 is the absence of wisdom. The absence of wisdom, or uh, a, a, a non-outline way to say it would be foolishness, right? Folly. So throughout this chapter, the preacher warns us against folly by displaying its character and its consequences. Folly is an old-fashioned word. We don't use it a lot in conversation uh, nowadays. But it doesn't mean someone who's not intelligent. It means someone who willfully refuses to recognize reality and live accordingly. Folly is, is more fundamentally moral than it is mental. Um, although, of course, it does have mental consequences, the way it affects the way we think. So one of the things the preacher's doing in this chapter, he's training our heart to be repulsed by folly. He's showing us that where there is an absence of wisdom, your life will implode and it will contaminate you and others. Look again at verse 1. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. Now, I don't often make a big deal about this, but every once in a while, in fact, it was recently, I think I was eating something, I don't remember where it was from, but um, there was a hair in it. Um, You know, it only takes one hair for a lot of people in their food to ruin their appetites. Now, I just pull the hair out and keep eating because I don't don't, don't care that much. Um, But a lot of people, it it ruins the meal. you know, hair has protein, I think. It only, it, only, it only takes one harsh word to ruin a friendship, doesn't it? It only takes one betrayal to shatter the trust that you had for someone else. That's why Scripture exhorts all of us to grow in Christ-likeness to bear all the fruit of the Spirit. Remember what James told us? And of course, James is a lot like the book of Proverbs, isn't it? James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And then he goes on to say, And let steadfastness 
have its full effect. What, what is the full effect? That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's what he wants us to be. He wants us to grow to the point where we're lacking in nothing. Verse 2 tells us, folly flows from the heart. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Wisdom and folly are, are not a matter merely of character, or, or, or uh, rather, not a, a matter merely of behavior. They're, it's a matter of character. It's a deeper matter. It's not just about the words we say and the actions we take, but it's about who we are on the inside. It's about our thoughts and, and affections, our, our nature, our feelings. Folly comes from inside of us, and it shows itself off outside of us. Um, and folly will inevitably come out if it's inside of you. Look at verse 3. That's the point of verse 3. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. You know, just a couple short decades ago, uh, I, my kids might remember this a little bit, but just a couple decades ago, if you wanted the world around you to hear your favorite music, you had to have the boldness to carry on your shoulder a massive boombox. Remember those? These days, all you have to do is get your smartphone out, not hooked up to any earphones, and those little speakers in those things are so loud, everybody around you can hear your music or your podcast, or whatever you're listening to while you're jogging. Everybody can broadcast their noise. And beyond boomboxes and beyond iPhones and Samsungs, we all broadcast. If folly's in your heart, you can't keep it from getting out. It's going to come out. It's going to be seen by the people around you. So instead of worrying about what other people think, Instead of constantly trying to do image control, focus on your heart. The only effective way to change what people see on the outside is to change what's on the inside. Your folly is often far more visible to others than it is to you as well, isn't it? So enlist, and this is, this is what the church is great for, enlist as many helpful sets of eyes as you can. Be quick to find fault in yourself and slow to find fault in others. Get other church members and brothers and sisters around you to, to hold up the mirror of Scripture to your character. Be vulnerable in that way. Ask those brothers and sisters to point out what's really there in both Scripture and your life. What are those annoying sins that you keep committing and maybe don't even realize it? What are the ruts of foolishness that you are regularly falling into? If someone, someone were to finish this sentence about you, he's great in so many ways, but fill in the blank. How do you think they'd fill in the blank? Ask. Find out. Work on your heart. Well, one of the main works that folly shows itself by 
is words, our words. And that's the theme of verses 12 to 15. Drop down there. Look at those verses. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him? The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. Of course, foolish speech hurts other people, but look again at verse 12. The lips of a fool consume him. If your heart is self-serving, your speech will become self-devouring. Verse 13 says, a fool's speech starts in nonsense and it ends in lunacy. Verse 14 tells us, the number of a fool's words exceeds the amount of their knowledge. Verse 15 tells us the fool is the kind of person who could get lost in an elevator. They don't know where they're going. They're clueless. But the main point of this paragraph is words. Look at that phrase again in verse 14. A fool multiplies words. When are you tempted to multiply words, brothers and sisters? When are you tempted to say more than you know? More than's good, than is good for anybody else. More than is good for you. Well, I can think of a time. Every time you and I click on Facebook or Twitter. Ooh, it got quiet. Social media platforms are developed and optimized to do what? Multiply words. They're a standing invitation to say more than I know. More than's good for everybody else. And more than's good for me. So speak carefully. Especially when you don't have the natural inhibition of another flesh and blood human being looking at you as you're typing things on a screen or as words are coming out of your mouth. Whether you're on social media or any other venue of communication, are you tempted to speak with more confidence than knowledge? If you always have to say something, How often do you actually have something to say? Something worth saying. This is something we have to evaluate constantly. Fools multiply words. Be careful what we say. Be careful what we type. In verses 16 and 17, the preacher paints contrasting portraits of bad and good governments. For now, let's just look at the bad in verse 16. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. The leader being condemned here seems to be unqualified. And his inner circle are are self-indulgent. They've abandoned themselves to their sinful appetites. And instead of using their public resources to promote the common good like we would like to see rulers do, They're just absorbing it all on themselves in self-indulgence. Of course, that never happens, right? Yeah. This is a picture of the perversion of authority. 
that it hurts those who are under it. This verse is telling us that only a fool would want power in order to profit himself or herself. All authority is given in order to enable others to flourish. That's the design of authority. That's the purpose. That's the test of its use. So whatever kind of power that you would like to have in this life, strive to be more qualified for it than just simply to get it. Whether your aspiration is professionally or politically or pastorally or anything else, concern ourselves with being more fit for authority than being given authority. Work on our hearts to eliminate folly. Verse 18 tells us of another consequence of folly. Through sloth, the roof sinks in, and through indolence, the house leaks. You know, in ancient Israel, the roofs tended to be flat, and they were covered with coats of lime. That was their waterproofing. And over time, the lime would crack and decay and water would seep in. So they had to regularly maintain their roofs by putting on fresh coats of lime. What's verse 18 telling us? Folly feeds sloth. And sloth neglects maintenance. So the question is, what maintenance in your life are you tempted to neglect? Is it spiritual disciplines in God's Word, in prayer, sharing the gospel with others? Is it confession of sin that we're tempted to neglect? Is it a a difficult relationship with someone else in your church, in your small group, in your Bible study that you, you just are neglecting, fixing? Where are you tempted to let that decay, those cracks, win out? Well, look, he returns here um, to, to the theme of how foolish words spoken against others turn out to actually hurt the speaker. Um, look down in uh, verse 20. Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich. For a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some uh, winged creature tell the matter. How can you ensure that that nasty comment you made about your boss won't reach their ears? I'll tell you how you can ensure it. Don't say it. How can you ensure that you won't say it? Well, that's a little harder, isn't it? Self-control goes a long way, but, but looking at the, look at the verse again. Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king. You know, the only sure way not to say it is not to think it. And the only way to do that is to do what Paul commends to us in Romans chapter 12. You guys know this verse. Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. 
even in your thoughts, don't curse the king. When is the last time that you verbally or mentally cursed someone who holds public office? City, state, federal, legislative, judicial, executive. Friends, it's, it's easy to deceive ourselves here. You know, you might think, well, I'm just exercising the prerogative of critical accountability like any good citizen should. But instead, you're simply bad-mouthing someone in power and not giving them the honor that they're due. What's the alternative to saying these kinds of foolish things or thinking these kinds of foolish things? What is the alternative? Jesus told us, didn't he? Bless them! And pray for them. That's the alternative. What happens when wisdom is absent? What happens when folly sets in? Your words harm yourself even more than they harm others. You can undo more good in a minute than you can accomplish in a year. Haven't we all learned that lesson from time to time? Everyone sees it too. Sometimes everyone except us. Notice secondly, not only the absence of wisdom, but the fruit of wisdom. Because looking at chapter 10 again, in this chapter, the the preacher is trying to train our hearts not only to be repulsed by foolishness, by folly, but he also wants us to be attracted to wisdom. This chapter is trying to, as it were, take our hearts and re-magnetize them so that we are drawn, we are pulled to the right things, to wisdom and not folly, so that we can taste the sweet consequences of wisdom as opposed to the sour consequences and self-destructive consequences of folly. As we saw in verse 2, wisdom, like folly, is a matter of the heart. Proverbs 14.33 says, Wisdom rests in the heart of a man of understanding, but it makes itself known even in the midst of fools. So what Ecclesiastes is commending throughout this chapter is not just about rule-keeping, but heart-forming. It wants us to change our hearts. And it's only this kind of heart-wisdom that enables us to pull off what verse 4 tells us to. Look at verse 4. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. If a superior of yours launches into an unprovoked tirade, an unjust attack on you, stay calm and stay at your post. When someone is mad at you for no good reason, now they may be mad at you for a good reason, but if they're mad at you for no good reason, you want to just act like a slab of concrete. What happens if someone takes a a, a match and, and lights it and holds it up to a piece of concrete? Nothing. What eventually happens is the match burns out, right? So the way to overcome someone else's anger is not to add fuel to it. Don't get your own matches out and start throwing matches at each other. 
It's bad enough if one person loses his head. Don't make it two people. That's this verse's simple instruction. Calmness triumphs over anger. Because if nothing else, the angry person will eventually get sick of getting no rise out of you. That's what happens. You can wait them out. So wisdom teaches you, rule yourself, rule your spirit, rule your reactions. It also teaches you how to rightly read the world. This is a crucial ingredient when it comes to biblical wisdom. You see it in Proverbs all over the place. You see it here in verses 8 through 11. How to rightly read the world. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones (coughs) is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. (coughs) Excuse me. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. You know, these verses are all about different types of cause and effect relationships. Verse 8 warns us that evil is like a boomerang. If you, if you fling it out into the world, it's going to come flying right back at you. Verse 9 reminds us that risks are everywhere. Quarrying stones and chopping wood are obviously legitimate jobs, right? Wisdom can reduce risks, but it can't eliminate risk. There are no risk-free options in this life. Verse 10 teaches cutting corners will in the end take longer and cost more effort. You you may think that, you know, know, you're wasting time to slow down and sharpen that axe. But of course, if you spend that time, the rest will go quicker. Verse 10 is saying the fastest way to do any job is the right way. If you don't do it the right way, someone else or you yourself, are going to have to come along and probably do it again. Verse 11, I don't really know what's going on here. This verse is, uh, is difficult, and I like snakes. I think they're magnificent. But um, this is a hard verse to translate. It, it, might be, it, might be sim- it might be as simple as this. Um, it, it's, it's talking about the charm you, you know, the little snake charmers, you know, nah, 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 the little cobra comes out of the basket, you know. It's talking about the charm being no use if the snake bites first. It, it might be as simple as, like, wearing a seatbelt. You know, it, it only does you any good if you put it on before you get rear-ended, right? That may be the lesson of verse 11. I don't really know. That's the best I got. Moving on. Cause and effect, risk and reward, preparation, follow through. This this sounds like basic stuff, right? But it's just part of living, one author puts it this way, we're living with the grain of God's universe. Wisdom teaches us to watch the way the world works and then to work in such a way that works with the way the world works. 
It teaches you to find the grain of the world and cut along it. You know, every parent knows one of the major struggles of parenting is getting children to discern and act on these cause and effect relationships. So, you know, hypothetical scenario here. A parent may say to a child, if you do all your homework right now, you can do whatever you want for the whole rest of the day. I don't care. Make popcorn, watch a movie, I don't care. But not every child will take that parent up on that offer. Wisdom involves discerning consequences of the good and working for those. The kid might say, I don't want to do my homework more than I want to eat popcorn and watch a movie. And so I refuse the offer. So we've got to teach kids to take the good, to go after the good consequences and learn how to discern that. Yeah, the point of these verses is wisdom teaches us to watch and learn and especially watch and learn what you can and can't control. You, you can control how well prepared you are for a job. You can control that. You can't control what your teammates contribute or how your boss is going to respond or whether a client is finally going to sign that contract. All you can control, all of those other things are beyond your ability. You know, one of the most common causes of anxiety and worry in people's lives is thinking that we can control things that we really can't. Thinking that we are more responsible for things that we really aren't. If you're in a conflict with somebody else, you can control your contribution to that conflict. Are you being patient? Are you being charitable? Are you being fair? Are you being even-handed? Are you refusing to judge their motives? Are you thinking the best about that person? All of that is in your control. But you can't control how the other person responds. So Solomon would tell you, do what you can and pray for what you can't. You know, in the previous point, we considered the words of a fool. Look at verse 12 to see the opposite when it comes to wisdom. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor. Now, this could mean that, that the words of the wise are gracious or that they're gratefully received. Both are true. But I think the emphasis here is on consequences. The words of the wise help others. And in turn, they tend to prompt thanksgiving for those wise words. Think about how one fitting word of encouragement has helped you stay afloat on a rough day. All it takes is that one word of encouragement. To change your whole outlook, doesn't it? Think about how sometimes a group of people can be struggling to come to a decision and temperatures are starting to flare up 
tension is rising. You ever been in one of those meetings, you know? And then one person distills the issue, puts forward a simple solution, offers a way forward, and almost out of thin air, agreement seems to materialize. Tempers lower. We saw in verse 4 how wisdom helps you rule yourself. In verse 17, down on the other end of the chapter, we see how it helps you rule others. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. The point about being the son of the nobility is not about some kind of class distinction or class superiority, but about the training that someone in that situation would likely have had from a young age about the skills of governance. And the point about his nobles here, his princes, is that the other leaders know the right time and the right place and the right reason for enjoying good gifts, unlike the fools that we looked at earlier. Ecclesiastes is saying here, wisdom becomes the handmaid of good government. Wherever you look around and see good government, and admittedly, it's hard to find, right? But wherever you look around and see good government, you will probably find wisdom at work. Skip down to verse 19. And of course, just a point there, in order to rule others well, you have to first rule yourself, right? So we want to start with that. Down to verse 19. Bread is made for laughter and wine gladdens life and money answers everything. Pastor Trey said that was his new life verse. Yeah. The author is employing a little bit of overstatement here to make his point. Money is a medium of exchange, right? So if you have it, you can get just about anything you want with it. Money purchases things. So since money uh, is that way, the, the next question to ask when it comes to wisdom is, what do you want and why? And, and the point, I think, of verse 19 is simply to show us what money is and remind us of its power because that power is a double-edged sword if you turn on your gas grill and the fire comes out that fire can cook your lunch right it can also burn your hands you're not ready to handle fire until you know how hot it is and how easily it burns. You're not ready to handle money until you know how powerful it is, how easily it can enslave you. I think that's the point of verse 19. So that, brothers and sisters, is a very quick sketch of this chapter's character studies on folly and wisdom. There, there really are two ways to live. You can live in wisdom. You can live in folly. But the final question I want to talk to us for just a few minutes this morning is, how can you get this wisdom? Where can you find it? How do you actually live this out? I want to talk thirdly here about the weakness of wisdom. 
Look down at verse 1 again. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. Wisdom is weak in that it is vulnerable to our own internal wickedness. Wisdom is weak in that we all have enough dead flies of folly in us to ruin thousands of jars of wisdom's ointment. How can you read verse 1 and not be convicted? I don't know. I am. Wisdom is weak because it's much easier to break a coffee mug than to repair it. It's easier to divide a church than it is to divide $2. Wisdom is weak because of our own fallen hearts and how we attack it from within. In our own strength, by our own resources, none of us can live up to this chapter's portrait of wisdom. But there's another sense in which wisdom is weak. Look at verses 5-7. through seven. There's an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I've seen slaves on horses, and princes walking on the ground like slaves. You know, one of the main themes that we've seen in the book of Ecclesiastes is that the only guarantee in life is what? Death. Wisdom will not guarantee you success or power. The wisest candidate does not always receive the most votes, right? In this life, distribution of recognition, of influence, of power, of rewards is often upside down. The best person doesn't always get the job. Folly is set in many high places. And when, when verse 5 says that's proceeding from the ruler, it means there's someone foolish in power. So, if there's someone foolish in power, they appoint fools to be their delegates and their counselors. Sometimes, wisdom will not keep you from losing. You can do everything right and still come up with the short end of the stick. Have you ever noticed that in life? That's because this whole world is fallen. It's cursed. It's dominated by sin. You can do everything right and still have things go wrong. The world is indeed upside down. And the supreme example of that upside down is that the only perfectly wise person who ever lived, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, was elevated not to power and glory in this world's eyes, which is exactly what he deserved, but elevated to a shameful, excruciating death on a cross. Jesus endured weakness, loneliness, poverty, and pain and the end of his life to any onlookers would have looked like a spectacular failure. 
But the world did not get to speak the last word on Jesus, did it? God the Father did that by raising him from the dead. The Apostle Paul tells us that this good news, the gospel message, is true wisdom. But it's a wisdom that looks foolish to the world. Do you remember what 1 Corinthians says? By the way, the next book we're moving to on Sunday mornings in February. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it's not a wisdom of this age, we might say it's not a wisdom under the sun. It's not a wisdom of this age who are doomed to pass away. We impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Paul wrote this, 1 Corinthians 2. Brothers and sisters, members of Heather Hills Baptist Church, remember what I just told you. Because this world is upside down. And so a rightly ordered life, like we want to live, is also going to look upside down to the world. You take a stand on biblical marriage or on biblical truth regarding gender, you're going to look upside down to the world. And don't be surprised that they react the way they do. They live in folly. They don't have wisdom from Christ. Consider all that the world strives for. All the biggest magnets, as it were, that, that, that pull at millions and billions of hearts. Think about those big ones. And then consider what Jesus teaches us in places like Matthew 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The world doesn't teach you that. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Oh, no, we don't want any mourning. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. No, no, don't want to show any vulnerability. We want to be strong. Don't show any, don't show any weaknesses in our armor. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It doesn't make any sense to the world. It's upside down. Luke 6, Jesus said, Woe to you who are rich, for you've received your consolation. That's it. It's all the consolation you're going to get in the world. Congratulations. Enjoy it while it lasts. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. The wisdom of God, the wisdom of Jesus Christ, is a a wisdom that's foreign to the world in which we live. It's upside down. The shape of the Christian life traces the shape of Jesus' life, which means that cross 
comes before glory. This is wisdom. The morning comes before rejoicing. Humiliation comes before exaltation. Wisdom is weak because our sin wounds it and because the world is upside down and wisdom doesn't always win under the sun. And the wisdom of the gospel is weak by worldly standards. But as the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.25, you guys know this verse, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. I'll ask the praise team to come back up. We're going to sing a final song here. Just a, a quick final thought to close out the message, and I do mean quick. Do you care more about success or sanctification? Becoming like Jesus. Think about that question. Think about the words you say, the actions you take in life. Do you care more about success or sanctification? Are you more eager for power or for purity? Would you rather be rich or righteous? What is your only thing that you're living life for? Is it anything other than Jesus Christ and Him crucified? The forked path that God's Word holds out to you, you're at the fork. You've got to go one way or the other. Shows you that sinful folly is worse than any pain this life can inflict on you. And God's wisdom is better than any pleasure this world has to offer. Think about these things. Let God's word dwell in you richly. Let's stand together as we sing and ask the Lord Jesus to be our wisdom in this life.